Welcome to How to Hochschule, our audio guide about tackling life and work at Rheinwald University of Applied Sciences, one of the most international universities in Germany. So grab a cup of hot matcha tea, put on your comfiest headphones and join us as we explore the world of Hochschule Rheinwald. Harry, the last time we heard from you, it was about uh, relearning German, actually. And you're back with your new, very own episode. Yep. I'm the I'm the host now. No longer just a yeah. co-host, I guess. Ka kind of, yeah. <laughs> so um, what's quite interesting, the topic you choose, how did you come up with the topic about sustainability? Um, well... I've been hearing the word sustainability for years now, and it has turned into a very, very big issue on, on many levels in society. For example, recently, we went to an event that was held in university called the Akademische Jahresfeier. Yes, if you translate it, it's something like a celebration of the University of Applied Sciences. Runs every year. There was a break in between Corona and now, but that's more or less how I would translate it. Yeah, yeah. And it was a it was a pretty long event that went into the night, and it sort of recognized the work that was done by the students and professors of um, this university. Some professors won awards, some students won awards for their work and contributions. And um, right before that happened, there was a poster presentation on the on the second floor of the Audimax where students and professors were showcasing their research um, and talking to whomever about their research. And almost all of them had something to do with sustainability. And towards the end, there was a politician who gave a speech about sustainability. Right. It's, uh, actually, it was the Minister of Agriculture in the state of Nordrhein-Westfalen, Silke Goresen. The the speech was in German, and uh, since my episode about how to learn German, my German has not improved that much that I understood everything she was saying, but I definitely heard the word Nachhaltigkeit used a lot, which is the German for sustainability. As a science communication student, I've also had modules about sustainability, and um, clearly it was a very important topic for me, and I saw the podcast as a great medium to talk to, to reach more students about this um, about this topic and also to share with them about the research that they could very well be a part of in this university with sustainability as its goal. Harry, that's a very special episode for many reasons. One of the main reasons, of course, you're the host this time around, but also the second reason we got something very special for our listeners. Yeah, so um, we actually want to find out if our listeners are learning something from the content that we put out. And that's why this episode comes with a quick survey. So for everyone who's part of the HSRW family, if you check your university inbox, you will find a link to the survey. And you can also find the link on our show notes on our website. So I should only do the survey before listening to the episode, like right now? Um, well, as I mentioned in the inbox, um, you will actually find two links. One, which you should fill out before listening to the episode. And the second one, you should fill out after listening to the episode. So this way we can really see if the episode has taught you something. Sustainability itself is a, is, a, is a social goal. There are many definitions. Different people have their own versions of it. But the idea of sustainability 
is to have a world where our species can go on living for as long as possible with all the resources that we need. That's the overarching goal of sustainability. The United Nations has laid down 17 sustainable development goals. And um, if you would go to the offices of um, some of the professors and staff who are at the higher positions of the research projects, you will see many posters of the sustainable development goals stuck all over the world. If you would check out the United Nations website, you will find some pretty harrowing um, statistics about about the sustainable development goals. I mean, I, I have some on hand, which I could just read out for context. Yeah, in give, a way. give us some context. I'll give you some context. So um, there is a sustainable development goal number two, which is end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. And uh, on this page on the United Nations website of sustainable development goals, you can see some statistics such as 149.2 million children under the age of five are stunted. They're not growing properly. One in 10 people all over the world are suffering from hunger. Right, And if you look at um, sustainable development goal number six, which is to ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all, about three billion people in the world um, have access to water of a quality that we don't know about because there's not enough monitoring. And of course, there is the big, big conversations that we hear about a lot, which is climate change and renewable energy. And uh, sustainable development goal seven, which is ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. That says that although our energy, uh, our usage of renewable energy has increased over the years, right now, renewable energy still make up 17.7% of all energy that's being used. And uh, this is something that we also explored with the series of interviews that I carried out uh, to produce this episode. So, Harry, before we jump into it, How did you actually approach this topic? Well, I decided to get in touch with professors of this university who are also involved in some way with research, to be more specific, research in the area of sustainability. Lesson number one, sustainability starts with a mindset. So where did you start? Well, I started pretty high up. I went directly to the vice president of one of the vice presidents of this university. Okay, my name is Peter Kissers. At the moment, I am the vice president at this university for research, innovation and um, knowledge transfer. I'm responsible for, on the one, for the support of uh, the research activities in the university as well as the transfer activities. Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by transfer? Transfer is um, if, if our scientists work on a certain topic, in most of the cases, um, it's it's a bit tricky to get this uh, the knowledge they gain or the results out of the university. Sometimes they are in contact to companies, and then uh, there is a direct uh, transfer of knowledge. But sometimes it's uh, something that is more important for society, for example, or for a certain branch of uh, different companies in the end. And then we come into play because uh, our job is to do exactly this step out of the university, to to communicate what the university is able to do, to communicate uh, results of uh, research projects, um, to communicate 
um, yeah, let's say investigations or analysis results uh, that have been done, for example, in the Faculty of Society and Economics. Yeah, so where some people in the society itself are our, let's say, um, Uh, the people that are interesting to, to talk to, to uh, let's say, to transfer the knowledge to, so that they have an, an effect on, on their side, uh, so that they can benefit from it. And um, he's also the one who is in charge of this new big project that the university is starting out, which should go on until 2027, called Transregent. Now you can show me your new found germ skills. What does it stand for? Yep. Well, it stands for Transformation der Region Niederrhein, Innovation, Nachhaltigkeit, Teilhabe. Very good. And in English, that would be Transformation of the Lower Rhine Region, which is where we are right now, Innovation, Sustainability, and Participation. How did it start? So we, we decided to uh, develop some... Um, some communities in the university that focus on a certain kind of research. Yeah. So we call it Forschungsschwerpunkt, uh, profile in the end of research profile. Um, and uh, this, uh, during that, uh, that process, we had some pitches uh, from, from our scientists, from Kamplin Ford, from Cleves and so on. And one of them, that was Professor Becker, he said, we have to stay for something. Yeah, it's not enough just to do science. Uh, we have to stay for something. Um, and that was uh, the starting point of Transregent uh, because this was uh, what all of us realized is necessary. We have to get a profile for the university. We have to stay for something. The people understand, the people outside the university understand. Um, and this is sustainability in the end. Uh, and we... As a university, we are young. We have quite a lot of young uh, colleagues, uh, professors, scientific staff, and so on. Um, and all of them have an idea of what sustainability will be or is. And um, according to Professor Kistas, he said that um, the mindset that drives all these research projects under the Transregent um, umbrella is um, the mindset that says we are responsible for the future. And it was quite quite interesting to see how this, uh, let's say, sentence, we have to stay for something, we have to be responsible, or we are responsible for the future somehow, um, changed their minds. And they started to think about sustainability much more than before. We then decided, okay, we need kind of a, a nucleus uh, for, for exactly that. We need a kind of a project. And um, that was start point of Transregent. And then we started to develop this project um, and decided to have some, some uh, labs that are uh, open for society, that we are going to do citizen science, that we would like to do um, um, study programs that integrate um, research and transfer into teaching. Um, and all that is part of Transregent nowadays. Uh, all that is what we're starting with right now. And I hope in, in four and a half years, five years, we, we have reached a point where sustainability is something that all of us see as a kind of a unique selling point of the university. And could you explain about um, what sustainability means? From my point of view, it is quite simple. If we 
if we don't use more than what will be produced uh, during the time of use, then it is sustainable. Yeah. I don't want to go deeper, yeah, because that you will never be right, yeah, because there are so many different uh, definitions from different different perspectives. But we all have a kind of a feeling what sustainability is. Sustainability is certainly not if uh, somebody puts a green label on his on his product. Yeah, that's not that's greenwashing. Clear. Yeah. So we need solutions for the future that reduce. CO2 uh, um, emissions that uh, that enable us to, let's say, produce uh, products with different materials that are sustainable again. And these uh, materials replace the conventional materials such as steel or whatever, or plastics. We need biocompatible uh, plastics. All that is sustainable. Yeah. So if we can say, okay, what we use can grow during the um, period of using. From cradle to cradle is another argument uh, that you can find in, in this uh, field where it is a, quite a lot about building a house yeah, and what do you do with this house afterwards? Uh, can it be, can the materials be used for something next? Yeah, and step by step, you use materials not only for one purpose, but for many purposes uh, during its, its lifetime in the end. If you're talking about wood, you can use wood for 200, 300 years if you want. Yeah, and that's the time that is needed. Uh, for a tree to grow again, uh, to to be a big uh, tree in the end, um, and this is my my understanding of sustainability. So, for example, coal needs millions of years, but we use it in a few hundreds hundreds of years. That's not sustainable for sure, for sure not. Yeah, and then we talked about like some sustainable sustainability problems in this region. He gave um, hypothetical solutions that are not uh, implemented yet. For example, milk production is a big thing in this area. This big idea that keeps coming up when I was talking to him and also the other professors is closing loops. There is a big agricultural industry in this uh, in this region, and um, if you if you have a look at this um, and you look at the production of of um, milk, for example, yeah, then we have hundreds of cows here producing milk, but the milk will be transported to Cologne, to Düsseldorf, to I don't know Hamburg. Munich, whatever, yeah, or to China, yeah, if it is milk powder. Um, what remains here is um, all the rest. Yeah, it's only the milk that goes away. So we have no closed circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the waste products stay here, and uh, they contaminate the ground, the soil. Under normal conditions, uh, part of the uh, each each box or each uh, bag milk bag uh, needs a little bit of waste product on it. Yeah, to be transported so that the, the the circles are closed again. Perhaps somebody in Cologne can use it to for their plants. That would be a totally different uh, loop that we finally get, a totally different closed cycle. But we don't have it at the moment. It means all the waste products stay here. And as soon as we look at this, you have to convince people that other systems are, let's say, helpful to or are necessary to design the future. Um, and as soon as we talk about people, we're not only talking about the people on the street, um, the people that buy milk and so on, but also uh, the farmers who have to change their systems as well. And this is a process that cannot be done within a few days or years. That's a long process because they build build up um, 
systems that are quite expensive and they invested in it. Yeah. Hence, they can't stop with it right now. So we need solutions, ramp down the old system, ramp up the new system. That is what we finally need. Um, and this can only be achieved, this can only be successful if we have a situation where the customers understand this uh, this process again it's transfer in the end yeah transfer of knowledge from the university into the region and if we can provide some solutions for the farmers because they want to earn money not only now but also in 10 or 20 years and it requires communication to finally be able to explain what is behind uh, and to explain why it is necessary to, these, to do these steps. Because in most of the cases, I don't believe that we will be uh, able to to come to solutions without reducing our consumption. Yeah? So less is more in future. And this is another aspect that we have to keep in mind. As soon as we talk about tran uh, transformation processes, we have to explain much more because then it is not obvious what is what is greenwashing, what is not greenwashing. Um, it is not obvious where this information comes from. So it is also a kind of data literacy that comes into play. Yeah? Um, if, if somebody tells you this is good for the future, is it right or is it wrong? Yeah, who tells you if it is right or if it is wrong? what is fake and what is what is real. Um, and as soon as we talk about um, knowledge transfer and um, transfer into the society, for example, we as a university um, are able to handle information and we can differentiate in between fake and real and we, we look at facts, we look at data. Hence, we have an, an idea of what is good and what is bad information. And this is our obligation to... to to uh, let's say communicate what is what is good information and what is um, let's say information that helps us to to do the next steps. So the idea of Transregent is to make research transparent, to involve citizens um, in in the terms of getting their input for research because they are the end users of the research that's going to be done in this in this university. So to have labs that are open to them to come and share their insights. Uh, we have these hubs, uh, one for interaction. Interaction means uh, when we do science or when we do uh, investigations, we don't want to do it alone anymore. Uh, we would like to invite people to, to do it together with us with us and we would like to open um, the doors of the university not not the real doors but um, have more transparency in what we do yeah have more options for people from outside the university to work together with us and this is part of the interaction hub uh, in the in, in the transformation hub which is the one in in the middle which is from my point of view the the most important one if it comes to um to convincing people that we need some other solutions. Um, this hub is filled with real labs. Yeah? So labs where people can go to and see what is going on. Uh, if we're talking about um, uh, agriculture, for example, again, then we will have uh, uh, agroforced real labs. It means a combination of producing plants or vegetables, for example, on the one of fruits on the one hand and having trees in it as well. This is a system that is well known, but we forgot to use it. Uh, so it is, is 400, 500 years old 
And, uh, and at that time, it was quite common to have a combination of fruit and vegetable production and wood production, which is uh, forest in the end. Um, and um, this is what we would like to um, show once again, uh, so that people can go there, can see what is going on. Uh, at the same time, these labs are required to investigate how the behavior or how the how the conditions in such an uh, agroforest will be. Yeah. So, how is the impact on the moisture in the ground, for example? Uh, which plants are those that are suitable for such a system? Uh, which of them are not suitable? Um, all that has to be uh, investigated in this field, and um, our task is to have something that is open for the society yeah, so that people can go there and see what is going on. Yeah, so it does not mean that you have to study something. Uh, you can also work in a, in a project without being, uh, being an academic. Um, you can go there and add your point of view, your perspective to a scientific project, for example, and that makes it worth more than it is if it is only science. Yeah, because at that time it's it's um it's not only science but it's science that has been let's say evaluated by citizens what you see with your own eyes what you what you can touch is uh you trust in that much more than in other things for a student like me near the near the end of my study so i'll be out of here before trans region has flourished in its all its glory but what could i do to contribute to a more sustainable world sounds like a very generic question but that's a it's a good takeaway question let's let's do it the other way around let's look at me huh? yeah um, um i can have a look at my grandparents they lived differently um but much more sustainable than i did they had a much smaller world all around them they never flew into, into holidays or things like that. And the question is, does it really satisfy you if you if you do these things we can do right now, but we do um, without thinking about the consequences for, for the nature, for, for our world in the end. And I think what is most important is to reflect your decisions. Um, it's not that I would like to give you... Um, recommendation okay do this and do that there are quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of different options to do something but again it's an, an individual questions a question what is what is good for you and what is good for me i don't know if you eat uh, um, if you are a vegetarian or not yeah. um, hence you like meat mm -hmm. yeah. I do the same, and I don't want to uh, reduce it to zero, but I reduce it to, let's say, 50%, 40% of what I did before. And I think for all of us, there are options to, to keep an eye on sustainability. The clothes are another uh, topic. Yeah? Where should they come from? Uh, what, um, is, it, is it fair traded uh, material or not? Yeah? So there are quite a lot of small aspects that we can do in our private lives, um, to finally be sustainable um, in what we can, let's say, influence. The big changes, the transformative changes, come from, um, require some, some guidelines, some politics um, to, to do them. 
but all of us can do in our in our let's say surrounding in the families and in, in the houses or whatever we can reduce our consumption somehow all of us have to do what we are willing to do and what we are able to do what is most important is that people understand how does my behavior influence uh, our world yeah or my surrounding or whatever yeah and i have to start thinking about what are the consequences of my doing and as soon as you do that as soon as you start thinking about that you become sustainable without any problem because it's uh, you come to points uh, or to to decisions that you have to do which are let's say good or bad in terms of sustainability and as soon as you think about it you you start thinking about okay i go for the good one uh, even if it costs me something yeah effort or whatever uh, and that's from my point of view the first step into it Lesson number two, we can all get involved. Well, that's a pro project for the future. Mm -hmm. But what about projects that are happening right now at the university? Again, from Transregent, one of the projects that they have is agroforestry. And this has a significant overlap with another um, research group in this university, which according to Professor Peter Kistas, they share the same goal. So they're very much part of Transregent as well. And that is the Sustainable Food Systems Research Center which uh, has been established around two years ago. Everyone else that I spoke to for this episode has been a member of the Sustainable Food Systems Research Center um, because it's a cooperation, it's a, it's, a, it's a collaboration between, I think, more than 20 um, professors and colleagues from every faculty of this university. So the first person I spoke to was um, the main spokesperson of this uh, project, which is... My name is Dietrich Dahr. I'm professor of agribusiness at Rheinwald University. I'm teaching mostly in the agribusiness and sustainable agriculture de degree programs at the Faculty of Life Sciences. And in my research, I work with mostly people and uh, colleagues from developing countries in the Global South on agribusiness, uh, forestry, sustainable resource management, um, how to uh, contribute to bringing development to local communities uh, through utilizing these resources and uh, related topics. So Professor Dar told me about the research group itself, how it works, its, its history. And um, you are the head of the Sustainable Food Systems Research Center. I, I wouldn't call it the head. I'm the spokesperson at the moment. Yes. I was elected as being being the representative uh -huh. uh, or the, the speaker of the center. Mm -hmm. um, we consider ourselves being a network of 25 or so colleagues of the university originating from all four faculties um, who do research, which is somehow related to how food is being produced, how natural resources are used for food production, how this food is con con converted into uh, food products, how these are consumed, what are implications between or, or connections uh, between the food sector and, for example, the environment or the health sector, um, how the production of non-food resources in the agricultural sector uh, can contribute maybe also to 
creating new resource pools for a bioeconomy, for example. So all of these questions colleagues at our university work on. And we have joined forces in our research center in order to gain critical mass and visibility and um, inspire each other, um, collaborate in projects, attract or um, acquire these projects and funding for this work. And yeah. And how old is this research center? What is its history? We have um, established this research center, I think, more or less two years ago. So the university uh, leadership at some point um, wanted to consolidate the ongoing research, which was quite fragmented because individual professors followed their individual topics or projects, uh, wanted to consolidate that into some overarching research themes. After a, a long process of identifying topics that colleagues work on at the different faculties and forming um, coalitions and um, aggregating these many individual interest topics into overarching themes. And this sustainable food system theme emerged as one of, the, of those themes, which I think was um, attractive to a relatively large number um, of colleagues uh, who can all relate to this overarching theme. Yeah. Okay, okay. What is a sustainable food system? Um, a food system is the entirety of stakeholders and resources that are involved in food production, processing and consumption. Um, you would have the conventional or the, the traditional agricultural production system you would have the whole value chain of agricultural products up to the consumers um, you would have all the service providers and enterprises that are involved in some way in this whole process uh, logistics companies and um, banks and agricultural input uh, providers and so on but you would also look into for example the health implications of food consumption as we know that um, some type of food increases the risk for cardiovascular diseases, for example, and causes societal cost. Um, so the way of how we produce food has implications on many other um, sectors of society, for example, the health, um, health system, for example, um, environmental costs that um, affect quality of life, um, all the trade relationships that uh, come into the play here as well. Um, we have got these geopolitical repercussions to take into account think of recent uh, conflicts that we uh, have observed um, we look into the interaction of the policy sphere and food production uh, the common agricultural policies of relevance here in europe but similar uh, policies exist elsewhere in the world so how do they um, promote um, certain ways of food production, uh, how can we use such instruments in order to steer the whole system more towards sustainability? These are some questions. Colleagues also look into questions related to, uh, for example, labor conditions or the um, um, seasonality of work in the agricultural sector in a region like ours in the Lower Rhine Valley, for example, where during the harvesting time or during the the cultivation period a lot of migrant workers are needed in order to help the system help the sector actually do its work so all of this is actually and many other topics are actually 
captured under this umbrella of the sustainable food systems. And the intention when we talk about sustainable food systems is actually to ensure all these processes in a way that um, food security and um, well-being of uh, humans is ensured, taking into account the environmental um, conditions as well yeah, in order to reduce the amount of um, damage that is currently created through the way of how we produce our food. Um, so it links the way of food production and the um, food security and nutrition questions to sustainable development as well. There are three main research areas under this research project, right? So could you could you tell me what uh, the sub-themes are and what they mean? Yes. Um, we've uh, started off um, to define three sub themes which however are not carved in stone i think they are they will continuously de um, develop and evolve as our research interests evolve and as maybe also the societal requirements change in the future yeah so we have defined the three areas one of them uh, concerns the utilization of non-timber forest products or similar underutilized resources um, the second topic uh, deals with agroforestry systems. And the third topic, uh, the contribution of insects for um, human nutrition or animal nutrition. Yeah, and I can briefly talk about all of these three topics. Um, Non-timber forest products um, are, for example, wild fruits, fruit trees that have traditionally been uh, cultivated in certain regions already or that grow there naturally and um, the fruits of which play some role as um, uh, food or are otherwise important, for example, as a source of um, high-value uh, chemical substances that can be used for uh, purposes in the cosmetics industry or for... Um, for the food industry and things like that. So um, under the bioeconomy discussion where we'd like to try to get away from fossil fuels or fossil, uh, um, you know, crude oil and so on, um, I think these substances potentially gain importance uh, in a lot of industries yeah? and trying to understand, of course, first of all, the resource base or so what type of uh, fruits are there, uh, in which quantities, what are their chemical ingredients, what can these uh, ingredients be used for, how can they be um, extracted at uh, low enough cost in order to allow for an industrial use and things like that. Uh, these are some of the questions that we look into um, um, the second area, agroforestry, I think is um, a topic which has some overlap um, with the first one. But um, as we can also grow such, um, you know, trees generating non-timber forest products, wild fruits in agroforestry systems, in essence, agroforestry is the combination of agricultural production and tree growing on the same uh, unit of land. Uh, why is this important? Uh, primarily because um, growing trees on agricultural land increases carbon storage, which is important to fight climate change. It improves um, the soil conditions. It uh, improves the microclimate and reduces the amount of water that is needed for agricultural production and a number of other benefits uh, ecologically, but also socially or economically to the landowners. And um, in many regions in the world, you find farmers already practicing agroforestry, not so much in Germany. Uh, th this um, was a traditional practice, which was quite common 150 years ago. But with 
increasing specialization of agricultural farms and mechanization and larger units, etc., this practice has lost its importance. And we would like to contribute to developing agroforestry systems which are adjusted and adapted to the ecological but also economic and social conditions in a certain area. Take, for example, the Lower Rhine Valley. Um, and we would like to investigate the type of crops and trees that interact nicely together. We would like to investigate the economic performance, social performance of these systems, the benefits these systems generate over conventional or traditional agricultural uh, production and so on. Yeah? And one of the projects, um, one of the example projects in this field would be the um, Transregim project, uh, part of which is our agroforestry living lab, basically, that um, deals with exactly these questions here in the Lower Rhine Valley. And the third area on the contribution of um, insects for animal or human nutrition, I think, is an important topic as well, because we know that with increasing economic development, people like to eat higher quality food, and uh, many people increase their meat consumption levels at a global scale. So whenever people earn some additional income, they first of all buy better food, animal food products mostly. Um, but this comes with tremendous environmental cost. Um, animal uh, protein production requires a lot of fodder and energy input and it causes a lot of environmental impact uh, in terms of deforestation for example carbon emissions and so on so finding alternative sources of animal protein i think is one of the core challenges as well for the future food system globally at global scale and insects can be a suitable source of this protein um, there exist cultures in which um, insects are regarded as a delicacy and high quality food um and um, of course, we also know that food is very often uh, very deeply and culturally uh, rooted in people. So we don't expect Europeans to eat uh, insects very soon very much. But still, it can be an important source, for example, for um, animal protein, also feeding animals yeah, rather than you know, using other sources that are, are currently uh, important. So this is another field of research that is going on. And in addition to looking at the um, protein source or the importance as a protein source, uh, colleagues of ours also do research on how can the leftovers of these production systems be used um, to generate um, some higher value uh, uses, for example, how can valuable um, nutrients be extracted from the leftovers and how can they uh, be converted, for example, into agricultural fertilizer or maybe other uses as well. Uh, so this is an evolving research field as well. And given that this was one of the topics that colleagues have experience or expertise in, uh, it also ended up as one of the uh, core themes of our research center. Do you have a lot of student assistants on the team? We do have a number of, I think, three or so student assistants in the research center at the moment. Uh, they help us with um, project applications sometimes. Um, you know, there are all types of uh, very urgent ad hoc changes that are required or formatting uh, things that are required, literature work that needs to be done in order to support um, a, a, a proposal. 
Uh, and we do have uh, these um, student assistance also for supporting our public relations work, so the website or you know some some social media or poster making things like that. Um, yeah, and I think I hope they will also learn about science or some of the projects we do, and not just about these let's say, more administrative um, aspects. And of course, we do have a number of bachelor and master students who do their thesis with us. Um, and we do have PhD students. We work together in the ongoing projects, but I think also beyond that. Yeah, There is always some dynamics going on uh, where we pull together people also from different projects, the different professors, depending on the the scope of a new research proposal that we have in mind for example yeah what is the value that students will get from being a part of this project well i think they can work in an inspiring um, environment they can uh, work on topics that are important they can work closely with um, a number of researchers or colleagues in the research center who are very passionate about the work they can get insights into ongoing project work they can get orientation for their own research uh, career if they want. Um, if I uh, say research career, this can already relate to the question, what am I going to research in my bachelor's thesis, for example? So they, they can get inspiration. Um, sometimes there are opportunities in ongoing projects um, which they can better assess once they have spent some time in the research center talking to colleagues who are in charge of these projects, talking to other students who have perhaps already been working on such projects or similar projects. So overall, I think this is a great um, opportunity for those students who have an interest in doing some science um, or for getting to know this, you know, the, the food and environment and bioeconomy sector better. Maybe because they have studied um, a different subject in their undergrad or master's program, but still think that uh, this is a sector which uh, is of interest uh, to them professionally. Uh, that could can also be um, absolutely fine. Yeah, if they if we seek someone who supports our public rela relations work, uh, you do not need to have a background in uh, agriculture. You can well have a background. I don't know what in international business. Um, and then learn a lot about the sector by doing the work as a student assistant. And uh, so for people who are not in research, for me, especially students, right, who are not involved in research, but who are also, well, they're in the system, right, as consumers, what could they do to play their part? I think um, everyone should become more conscious of the choices they take when it comes to uh, purchasing or consuming food. And um, I think this would already help a lot yeah, to consider how has the food been produced, where does it come from, what might be the ecological or social impact or implications of this food product uh, more generally, uh, what might be the implications in terms of health. So is it really um, a good choice to live from I don't know what Coke and uh, some sweets uh, for a longer time, even though this might be an important uh, source of um, of energy during the exam period. That's no question. Um, I think being more conscious would already be a great um, asset. 
However, we shouldn't forget about uh, the fact that, I mean, consumers' choices are just one side of the coin. Yeah, Sometimes you see uh, or you, you hear people claim that we could transition the system if all consumers would make better choices. And I'm doubtful, to be honest. The second or the flip side of this coin is the institutional setup and the governance systems that exist. Yeah, We need laws and we need in, international rules and institutions that uh, lead to better outcomes in food production and food consumption. And uh, this means that we need to think about the way of how food production or consumption is being taxed, for example, how the inputs for food production are being taxed, um, the types of incentives that exist for farmers or for consumers or food processors uh, to do some uh, you know, ways of food production or consumption or processing and others not, um, and so on. We need international treaties. We need uh, all types of actions um, that ensure that the food system becomes more sustainable than it is currently. If there are professors who um, have specific research interests um, or if there are students who are looking for um, opportunities, of wh where should they go to? What should they do? We have got a website where we talk about the project that we do, the thesis topics that we offer, news that relate to our work and many other interesting th uh, things, uh, the, the colleagues that currently contribute to it. So as a student, I think that this is the first uh, go-to point uh, to inform yourself about the opportunities at our research center. Um, we also do have, and now this applies, I think, more to uh, professors or staff members or PhD students, we do have our monthly get-togethers on the very last Friday each month in the afternoon where we talk about uh, new projects and ongoing activities and also a bit of administrative work. So if you are interested in joining this group, then maybe uh, get in touch with us and uh, listen in into one of these meetings to find out more. And the website, it's already running that he mentioned in your interview. Yeah, it's been running for a while. It's um, called foodsystems.institute. Lesson number three, waste isn't always waste. And uh, one of the research projects that um, won an award was by uh, Dr. Connor Watson. Hello, my name is Connor Watson. I, um, I'll stick with scientific staff. So um, the slaves of the professors, you could say. And I've been working at this fine institution for, it will be 12 years in September. And um, he works with... To use his own words. How did I end up working with insects? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not involved in producing edible insects myself, but I've been working with the byproduct of insect larval production called frass. And frass is basically, in layman terms, larva poop, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, a mixture of larval excrement and their shed exoskeletons and the food that they have not consumed so it's very very nutritious and that's why it sparked a lot of interest within the uh, insect larval production industry haha -ha, do we have a zero waste industry if we can use this uh, larval poop as you say as a organic fertilizer the production of insect larvae on an industrial scale is something that's booming in europe now we have several million tons of insect larvae being produced annually 
And that means you're going to have several million tons of frass as well. But there's startup companies all over. So Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Portugal, Spain, to name but a few. Um, and we've got samples of the frass from various companies in various uh, countries all over Europe. Europe is the only continent in the world in which eating insects is not a norm. So it's certainly um, carried out in much larger scales in um, South America, parts of Asia, Africa, certainly. In those continents, I can't speak to the regulation there, but I know that it's the frass would be used um, as a fertilizer without the sort of regulatory um, hassle that, that, that EU countries are shortly about to experience. Um, the, the frass here, for example, needs to be heated to 70 degrees for an hour in order to reduce potential transmission of pathogenic bacteria to the human consumers um, when, it's, when it's spread onto the field later. A lot of the producers of insect larvae find this to be unnecessary. It's going to be very costly and it could also have environmental detrimental effects. But certainly, yeah, it's, it's for us, it's a nutritious byproduct of insect larval production and it's been used in various soils all over the world. Certainly, I imagine more liberally in, in poorer countries where there's less money for traditional mineral fertilizers. And uh, how, how is frass um, better than the more traditional fertilizers? Not just the mineral fertilizers, but I, I also think of other biomass type of fertilizers like from cow, cow um, feces and stuff. So how would frass be better in terms of yeah, so over, if you're thinking about a life cycle assessment, you think about, okay, um, if you take a cow, for example, and the amount of greenhouse gases that a cow belches and farts out are vastly, <laughs> vastly outweigh what, what um, mass of larvae would, would emit. So the, there's already a huge reduction in greenhouse gas emission for the comparable amount of protein you'd get from larvae uh, compared to a cow. Um, with regard to the excrement, well, for a start, the insects don't excrete urine. They only excrete um, excrement, you could say. So it's much less fluid than, than yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fertilizers taken from the mass production of cows is, of course, very, very fluid, uh, manure or, or slurry. Then the traditional fertilizers, if we're talking about the mineral ones, they, they are made with a lot of energy. If we're trying to get nitrogen from the air into a reactive form that can be taken up by plants, we need to combine nitrogen and hydrogen with uh, under very high heat and pressure, this Haber-Bosch process, and that, that, that requires a lot of energy to make. And same with things like phosphate fertilizers. They're often hoarded by um, countries that are not particularly politically stable and also some of these things can have trace contaminants of nasty heavy metals such as cadmium. So in frass we've got plenty of nitrogen, plenty of phosphorus in plant available uh, form already. But yeah, the, the big challenge with using the frass as a fertilizer is that it's hard to predict what this ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus to potassium is. These are the three nutrients that plants require in greatest quantities. And the ratio of these three things 
in the frass often depends on what the frass have been fed. And that has a huge influence on, on your end product. And um, the people who are producing the larvae, who, who are these people actually? And how long have they been around? Um, Where do you get your specimens from as well for your okay. research? Yeah, so there's, there's various small to medium-sized companies around Europe. Um, some are better established than others. Some are much more slick than others. Some might just be a person passionate about insects who who started growing mealworm on a very, very small scale or whatever it might be. But there's, there's larger companies. Certainly it's a well-established industry in the Netherlands, um, Basically, some the, some of the larger producers are are taking these larvae and using them for bird feed, um, fish feed, and they might be producing larvae with the with the goal of extracting the lipids within them for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so there's various end uses of of the protein and fats within larvae, but there's companies all over Europe. I've met various producers at um, a yearly um, conference held in Brussels and I always ask them for the samples of their frass and they're delighted to because for many companies this is kind of uh, a bit of a problem. What do we do with this byproduct? A lot of them haven't diversified into, they're, they're concentrating on the larval production and they're not, um, or they haven't found a good end user of the, the byproduct frass yet. Why not also from the adult insects? Like why just the larval excrement? Um, yeah, so if you're only interested in the, the protein and lipid extraction, that's much easier to extract from a larvae rather than the next stage, which would be a pupa or the, the adult insect. So um, these poor things are mashed up and <laughs> the chemicals are extracted from it. So we could have a whole tangential discussion about where we stand morally on that but i think most people would have much greater sympathy for a vertebrate or a mammal than for for an insect larvae um but yes i would like to hope that they don't suffer too much um they can be freeze-dried so it's a quite quick quick death if they're going to be used in say um edible snacks I and mean, in, in cowfland for example you can get these dried mealworm larvae that are flavored sour cream and onion or whatever so once you get over this initial repulsion i'm eating this horrible looking insect larvae it tastes just like a flavored pretzel or whatever have you ever experimented with that kind of cuisine um there was a mexican student a while ago who took in some edible grasshoppers and i did eat them and it's a i really can't describe what sort of um, experience it was. I, don't, I didn't dislike it, but nor did I like it. So um, I, I really can't describe the flavor either. It was, it was spicy, but not in a, in a way that I'd ever experienced before and slightly salty. Um, so it w isn't an experience I would willingly repeat too often, but nor is it one which I regret something like an incredible 75 billion tons of soil are lost annually to water and wind erosion and look at the population of the earth now what we are over 8 billion now approaching 9 and as nations like China India become wealthier and they are the demand for meat is going up and therefore um, quite often that's a, that's a land intensive 
way of generating that sort of protein. So it can use it can cause land use changes. Then you've got conversion of forests or grasslands to cropland, for example, and um, where you've you have cropland generally, you have poorer soil protection. You have potential loss of the, the potential to lose soil through water and wind erosion is higher. So you've got this growing population and this wonderfully fertile thin layer around the world that feeds us all is dwindling. So there are ways of offsetting that and we should certainly incorporate a lot, as much organic matter into the soil as possible to try and build up the carbon there again. But I don't know how pessimistic the, the prognosis is, but um, I would find that very, very depressing if I, if I uh, juxtaposed increasing population and their eating habits versus how much fertile soil is left in the world. There needs to be a sort of collective acceptance of the reality of, of global warming and the reality of soil erosion. And then if there's more and more people that would embrace vegetarianism, veganism, for example, then we're divert, diverting far smaller proportion of our grains into fodder for ruminants. So I think about three quarters of all the grains produced in the world end up inside a cow or a sheep or a pig or whatever. And if we can stop doing that, then there's the hope of um, feeding this expanding human population better and in a less environmentally destructive way. But if people are going to insist on eating meat, you know, I, I'm not going to be a hypocrite here. You know, I, I, I also am not um, a vegetarian. I certainly have reduced the amount of meat to eat, but I still find it tasty. Um, I've tried an insect burger that wasn't as good as a beef burger. Um, there was recently a, um ethical burger produced. So, so from stem cells, a burger was grown in a Petri dish and it cost, I forget what, 100,000 euros to make or something like that. But imagine as biotechnology gets better and better, I think there's a pilot scale um, factory that's been set up somewhere, I can't remember where, but if if this could allow us to, to have meat without an, any animals suffering, that would be an incredible uh, leap forward, I think. But otherwise, I think it's, it's necessary for uh, meat eating to become a luxury and not the norm. Lesson number four. Not all packages were made the same. And then again, we talk about um, closing the loop, right? Because then uh, you're not only farming the animals for consumption, but you also use um, the same thing with the cows. So that, that you, uh, or with the milk production, that you use the waste products of the insects. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's related to a circular economy. And um, the person who I was speaking to about circular economy was another professor on the Sustainable Food Systems Research Center. Yeah, my name is Matthias Blank. I'm coming here from the Faculty of Life Sciences. Uh, I'm here professor for environmental technology for, wow, 12 years now. And um, he has worked also in the government sector in uh, waste management. What do you deal with in this field? 
Actually, more with processes than with classical construction of technology. So processes like um, you deal with things like circular economy and yeah, stuff like that's course. a big part yeah, of that's your... a that's uh, yeah and big thing um, focused on this uh, on this biomass topic. Mm -hmm. But actually, as I told you, yeah, I worked for eight years in in waste management companies for so the circular economy and what is behind and what is the idea and how can we learn from nature to apply that uh, into our technical process so this is something i'm yeah in and i'm interested in could, could you explain what circular economy is there are two different ideas actually how to use and apply natural processes what we did as humans for a long time is um, and probably it's good to recognize that uh, as an as an opposite, probably. So what we did is we have a linear economy. So that means we are taking something, we are using it, we apply it, and we dispose it. And it lies somewhere, or we burn it, whatever we do with. This is not circular at all. Uh, circular would be if you try to close, as nature does, the cycles. So the material cycles, but also use the energy which is available in there and uh, construct a pro product in a way that you can use the material afterwards to rebuild or use again uh, the materials for a new product. And uh, on the other side, also try to close circles, not just for the material itself, but also for uh, other used commodities or raw materials or water or, yeah, and that you uh, try to keep uh, processes uh, running in a way that we reuse as much as possible from the things we apply or use in our daily life. Okay, and at and, and which point did people start to realize that they had to make a transition from a linear economy to a circular economy? I think it's an, there are a couple of reasons uh, why we do that. Yeah, people realize that we have a waste problem, yeah, that a lot of space is needed for landfills, for instance. If the waste reaches the landfills, you probably know, uh, we here in uh, Germany have an uh, in waste management system which has a long history and a long experience, and it works relatively good. Uh, but in a lot of parts in the world, there are a lot of challenges because uh, the waste management systems uh, are not there or are developing. And uh, so we see a lot of waste even around, especially now we have this plastic boom since a couple of decades. And <clears throat> so the waste does not really degrade very fast it lasts a long time which brings which brings us also additionally beside these space uh, reasons uh, problems which uh, are coming up another one is that we have a shortage of different raw materials commodities uh, yeah and we know that from different metals but also uh, of course crude oil uh, and gas is under discussion now we have the um yeah political barriers challenges as well uh, we say okay we want to try to be independent which which works simply better if you have the material uh, in a cycle compared uh, to uh, taking new ones and put it somewhere where you cannot use it anymore 
I, I think it's not one point where you said, okay, from now on, we thought we should have to do something uh, totally different. I think it was a long process and it has to be uh, also an international process. Yeah, it makes, it is very important on one side for different technologies that we hear in Germany are the front runners or uh, whatever, that there, there has to be wherever. Yeah, but uh, I think uh, it is also very important that we generally and all together are thinking how we uh, want to uh, design our uh, future in a way and how we are able to make things more sustainable. Sustainable is a big word and we could discuss. He seemed a little bit skeptical about the word sustainability. He expressed that he is not satisfied with how it's being thrown around everywhere. He uses a buzzword. Uh, I'm a bit uh, yeah, skeptic about this more and more or more intensive use of this uh, word, yeah, inflation of, of using uh, sustainability, uh, because most of the things uh, we are talking about as sustainable are not sustainable at all. Uh, but... Uh, in future, we have to, I guess, uh, to think about more what we are doing, what we are using, and uh, to understand that this planet is limited in a way. Please tell me more about that. What is sustainability? And then we go from there. From my personal uh, point of view, yeah, sustainable. In a sustainable way, we lived, I don't know, probably 10,000 years back. Uh, there we were able to be part of a nature on this planet and a part of this living together of all the organisms. And then we started somewhere to settle down, to produce things, take influence on nature around us. Yeah. Try to get not just not hungry anymore. Yeah. Try to get rich. And this uh, is the general problem uh, we have. Yeah. If we want to get more and develop things and uh, want to have more material goods, this is something what is not in common with the, with the idea idea of sustainability yeah where you where you have to have i guess and uh, yeah the idea behind is what is it that is yeah that the people in future can live without uh, any restrictions in a way as we are yeah using the material from now without limiting uh, future generations this is what what's the definition we have for sustainability but this is uh, quite hard yeah when you have an a limited amount of uh, things available because this planet is round and we are not really intensively in exchange uh, with some other planets. So there is an, an, an limitation. Yeah. And this means we should reach a stable balance. And to get that, to reach that, this is really quite hard in our modern world. Yeah. So even if we do processes, design and whatever more environmentally friendly, It's not sustainable from my point of view. Car with an electric drive is not sustainable. Yeah, you use a lot of goods and for most of them, we uh, do not know right now how to keep it in this cycle we talked about. Yeah. So it is an, a good idea and in development and a step forward. But I guess uh, really to call it sustainable, that would mean that we Uh, really having 100% recycling available for those uh, things. And this is something we are working on. Let's say, let's say it in an optimistic way. Yeah. So uh, we have to work on, and there is uh, a lot of uh, questions we still have uh, for future generations and for young people uh, to find solutions in. And this is what we are working here and at this university as well. Do you think it's theoretically 
um, possible? Do you think it's theoretically possible to reach 100%? Uh, probably not 100%, but we have to get better. Yeah, I think when you see in, in, in different, when you compare different materials, yeah, we have good recycling systems uh, for glass and for paper, for instance. Yeah, you know, we have all these bins and put it and collect it. And in both, we have really high recycling rates. But in glass, from the, from the technical point of view, you can melt glass and glass comes out. Yeah, and this works quite good. When you use paper, then you have in each recycling uh, process also causes and change in structure of the fibers in there. That mean after a while it loses quality simply, yeah, because it is a material which has these special properties. Actually, yeah, recycling paper makes incredibly sense, but we will not reach 100%. Mm. Yeah, this is what I want to say. With. A, a big takeaway from my conversation with Professor Kleinke was how it's never an isolated system. What about people who are not in research? What could they do to maybe help with this process? Like, of course, we can talk about consumer behavior, for example. Mm. Like, if I want to buy a Coca-Cola, it comes in different types of packaging, yeah. right? Some are just more sustainable than others. Like, how would I make these decisions in on a daily basis? Yeah, I think uh, knowledge plays an important role, and I think this has also to be, uh, yeah, to be supported, not just by education, but also by, let's say, political guidance, yeah, or, or let's say, not misguidance. Yeah, there are different ways how uh, you uh, can get your Coca-Cola from. Yeah, you could have glass bottles, you could have plastic bottles, you could have cans, you could have whatever. Yeah, tetra packs are not so good for Coca-Cola, but it's also an option yeah and uh, there is a lot of uh, investigation was going on which is the best uh, packaging and this depends yeah the, the circumstances are so so different yeah if your coca-cola uh, bottle goes or stays somewhere here nearby then probably the glass bottle the recyclable or the reusable glass bottle is the best yeah but we have bad examples uh, for this application as well yeah when you think about beer for instance instead of coca-cola uh, coca-cola is a very isn't standardized yeah we just have just talk about coca-cola but we could also talk about africola but if you think about the beer market it's incredible yeah in former times we had one standard bottle and if you want to buy a beer from whatever, from northern or southern Germany, it was in the same bottle. Yeah, now try to buy a beer from northern Germany. It comes from Giva, it comes from Flensburg, it comes from whatever. And all the bottles have a different shape. What's going to happen with these bottles? Yeah, so if you want to buy a uh, beer from Flensburg, it's not just that the bottle goes one way. It has also to go the other way to go back to this. Yeah, so we have two transport ways. What makes no sense? Mm. Besides, it's best uh, trying local beer. Yeah, then the transport is also for the one direction, not that far. But this is what I mean. You you get the point. Yeah, if you turn, if the transport plays a very important role, the weight also is important. That means. If the transport distance is long, probably there are better options. Yeah, probably that's also the reason for why Coca-Cola is uh, using this reusable uh, plastic bottles because they are not so heavy. I don't like plastic bottles uh, because I, yeah, plastic is problematic uh, anyhow. But to make a whole assessment, uh, yeah, you have to see the whole picture and then different solutions might also make sense in a way i'm really a fan of uh, reusable packaging and on 
of glass. But if you see, that's what I think about this political guidance, yeah, the decision to put the refund on cans, for instance, yeah, which is relatively pricey, yeah, so 25 cents for one can, uh, changed the whole market. Yeah, it's because people bought the beer because it is so cheap and the can has no refund and I can throw it away. Now the refund is very high, so there are just a limited amount. It makes no sense to buy beer in uh, in cans. That changed a lot. On the other side, we have this one-way plastic uh, packaging for water and uh, whatever, Yeah, these PET bottles, which can, are not reused, they are recycled. But it's an incredibly successful system because of the high price and nobody is throwing away these bottles in our Spoy uh, canal uh, here because it's too pricey here yeah? they bring it back and there is a recycling uh, system possible because it's just a bottle and it is not a mixture of different wastes so that it's not dirty it's clean it's one material it works perfect yeah very good uh, yeah i wouldn't buy beer and plastic bottles but it works very good yeah i just think it's not so easy to say we have one solution and uh, the assessment uh, of the influences on the environment uh, is even more complicated because yeah you have to include also the transport the cleaning effort whatever uh, which has to be added uh, and if you need more oil for cleaning and transport as to make a plastic packaging for yogurt or whatever. I don't know. Best is to buy your yogurt by a farmer nearby. Mm. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. when you ask me what is the solution for that. I have no, uh, but if you ask me, try to keep it simple and not to drive yogurt all over Germany. Mm -hmm. um, so you've been um, involved in this area for quite some time now, and uh, you've highlighted how everything is so interconnected and so mm -hmm. many moving parts. It's a very complex system. In all the years that you've been involved in this, have you seen any significant, like, are we significantly moving in a in a good direction? And are you optimistic for the future? You can be completely honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it would be very frustrating if I uh, would uh, say, oh, oh, everything is dark and nothing happens. Of course, we have to go on uh, step by step and we have to find solutions uh, for the challenges. But um, yeah, I think or oh, I really try to point out uh, that we have to get faster as we are right now. I think, yeah, right now during the last years and decades, we are realizing that the uh, the challenges we have uh, are growing faster than our solutions are uh, growing. This is, yeah, we have a higher and higher demand on different commodities or energy. And uh, on uh, the other side, for instance, the renewable energy sector is not growing worldwide as fast as our demand is. Uh, and actually, we should have an, an total change right now yeah we should reduce our uh, fossil fuel use for climate issues very dramatically but we are not doing yeah so if you see the development of our behavior then i'm uh, i'm i don't want to say pessimistic but I'm, i think there could be uh, we have to work on um, uh, to show the optimism 
even better. But <laughs> I try to be diplomatic, but it's not so easy. Uh, but uh, on the other side, there there is a lot of motivation when you see uh, how the people are changing their uh, their ideas, their behavior, their engagement. Yeah, and this not just here in in, in Germany and Central Europe in Europe uh, but also all over the world I think we have to limit ourselves as well especially here in, in our region by reducing our consumption in different ways Yeah, and this is we have to find out or we have to think about if this is it sounds like a limitation but I'm not really sure if it has to be Yeah, uh, if we don't uh, less consumption must not be less fun Actually, we know that, yeah, all of us have much more things as we need. And it is not really an advantage also for for your mind, for your happiness, for your whatever, but it's it's, it's just an, an short-term fun you have when you buy a new phone, bike, car, whatever. Yeah? Actually, it's not useful. Lesson number five, just explore. Is there anything else I could do, like as a consumer? Another person that I spoke to did give me some answers. And uh, she is, well, actually, she was the reason that this episode was even possible. Um, Dr. Katie Meinhold. I'm Katie. I work here as a research associate in different projects, and I coordinate the Sustainable Food System Research Center. And um, her research is in wild foods. Well, basically, you can't find them anywhere. Um, you, I mean, you can also go out and cleave to the forest. And uh, yeah, right now the wild garlic season is almost over, but there's a lot of mushrooms as well. So anything basically you can find in the wild and which is edible are, are wild foods. Um, and it's, yeah, it's the research is getting, yeah, uh, there's a lot more and more research on these products being um, being conducted because we know um well our normal food system really mainly consists of very few plants which are grown i mean mainly corn uh, rice and wheat and they make up really the majority of all of most of our nutrition don't know the exact percentage but we're knowing now that this is not really that sustainable both from a health perspective from an individual but also for our planet so If everything just comes from very few plants, um, it's not very sustainable and not very healthy. So there's a huge potential in exploring these wild foods more. So both, again, from a nutritional perspective, it's quite healthy. They all have uh, lots of vitamins, phytochemicals. Um, and also these species are often more adapted to climate change. Like yeah, my, my baobab example, it grows in areas, it grows in sub-Saharan Africa where hardly any other plant can grow so and it can provide nutrition and income to their local people so if we can boost such industry based on these plants in a sustainable way that can be you know be a, re a, a little um, part of making the world our food systems a bit more sustainable so how did it get to this point where so many plant species are just ignored Oh, how did we get to the <laughs> points? I mean, uh, uh, that goes probably back in history a long time where yeah, people started settling and where agriculture started um, just to, ma to make life easier as well. I mean, hunter-gathering, it's also very tough eh? if you don't find something. Um, 
then you're hungry. <laughs> so just um, having agriculture, I mean, of course, helps helps a lot. You can settle down and you can store things. You've, it's more it's more easy to survive. But nevertheless, we probably lost a few things um, that we see in our all these um, um, diseases, which are in the in yeah very developed countries, which appear with obesity and coronary heart disease and that is also due to this different type of lifestyle we have now so we have to find a, a balance somehow i think we're go go getting to know this a lot more and there's a real trend of a bit more maybe yeah getting back to the roots people are really more interested in collecting wild foods um i think the knowledge is getting it's getting more attention that there, there's a lot of healthy foods out there we don't know of and that there's um these diets where we just yeah highly processed foods just based on the five six main main crops is not really healthy or very sustainable i think and people i think it yeah yeah they really want to change something and uh yeah so the baobab tree is seems to be a very It's it's a big part of the research projects that go on in this um, research center. And baobab has been used on a small scale for centuries or thousands and thousands of years. And I wanted to understand, so why did this fruit make it that you can find it in a organic supermarket in Germany? So what, yeah, what changed? Because it can be a model then for other species. If we see other species which have good potential, uh, what can we learn from baobab? And everything well figured out everything has to be done differently so the way you harvest for instance how you store the fruit how you process the fruit um everything there's innovation everywhere so how you organize the supply um and then yeah to ensure because if you want to hitch reach these high value markets there's tons of um safety standards food standards you have to fulfill um so it's really difficult for a farmer in in yeah let's say Malawi first of all to know about these and then to reach these quality standards to yeah be able to sell in in Germany so there was a group of people um who basically got together and pushed this and really just with trial and error tried to uh, how do we organize this what machines do we need or which machines do we need to develop um to yeah To, to to solve this like who who collects us who collects wild foods uh right now yeah well it it, it depends where you are oh, yeah okay <laughs> so so first of all i think it's really um a lot of people do it on the whole globe wherever you are um i mean a lot of research has been carried out on really assessing it it's in in very rural areas or really it's associated sometimes with um very poor people as well who really depend on the forest to actually for example if there's the harvest fails they have they have to go to the forest and collect foods to be able to survive so that that's one group of people but it's also i mean if you go a lot of people in germany also collect wild foods because it, it's also a cultural thing certain ingredients are you know seasonal ingredients um are very common here so just right now we had the wild garlic season and you see it in restaurants you see you see it everywhere so it has got various components like cultural health wise sometimes pure necessity that you have to go out and collect but um the reasons why people do it are, are very diverse um yeah but 
Yeah, a lot of research has focused on these on in in so-called developing countries where people really um, rely on the forest, and that it can be a really high share of the income or or um, subsistence needs. I think up to twenty, thirty percent really of the income comes then from the forest. And and how vulnerable are these crops? Like, what are the environmental challenges they face? How easy? How threatened are are they? Yeah, well, that, that would depend on the species. It right? it, it yeah. really depends on the species, and that's really yeah, it's a it's a critical point because um, of course we well on the one hand we want to advertise uh, the use of these wild foods because they have so many benefits and then create income. But on the other hand, it's because they're still wild. It's often a it goes along a fine line. So if they become too popular and too many people collect uh then they might become threatened like the tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. that is so we need to find ways how how do we find a balance that we can get the benefits but don't threaten the species and that depends a lot on the species and uh, the situation as such so i mean baobab is a fruit so the harvesting is actually pretty you, d you don't harm the species as such whereas if it's a, a plant where you use the leaves or, or everything um, the chance for over exploitation is a lot more present um, yeah so basically you would need a sort certain systems or uh, like harvesting procedures or permit system how much you can harvest in a certain area you would need that information for every species you want to look at one area which was which really stood out to me so i was reading a united nations report um on the state of 12 wild foods like the the wild dozen mm -hmm. they call it in the report and something that that caught my attention was almost all of them had a very high risk in the social dimension so exploitation of mm -hmm. workers and child labor mm -hmm. and and things like that so for the plants that you have researched for example how is the situation when it comes to comes to that for baobab what comes to my mind i mean that the, the trees are extremely tall like 30 meters and the harvesting is often done by kids as well and they just climb the trees and accidents do do happen they don't have any there's not really safety precautions so um that is a that is a very dangerous factor. And also for the fruits or nuts collected from trees, that can be a really dangerous thing or issue that might need more, more attention. Um, so what we, or the people who do the baobab um, harvesting more, let's say more on a professional level, also hitting the export market or the certified markets, they advise only to um, harvest the ripe fruits which fall to the ground. And not they advise not to not to climb the trees, um, but yeah, if it, it again depends. Uh, as in, in Malawi, if it, the baobab is ripe just before the the corn gets ripe, so it's a kind of a hunger gap situation. So if you really depend on this fruit, or you do need income to sell, it's yeah, you wouldn't wait uh, until it falls down. But if you really need it, you you do climb the tree. <laughs> so um yeah it's some some things are are tricky one one way um that is often like um also to yeah to make it easier for the people but also to um yeah to sustain the species is then to start cultivation as well 
So then you basically again go into agriculture yeah. that try to cultivate these plants close to the house. Because another issue is if you go into forest, it might sometimes be dangerous, oh, depending with wild animals or whatever. So try to culti try to cultivate um, these species closer to you that you can more easily harvest, safer harvest, etc. Uh, that can also be a way. But I mean, for baobab, it takes a long. I mean, it takes. 20, 30 years until they have fruit. So we've started some research on it, how to, with grafting or something to make it easier. But that's still a long way to go. But for some species that works, for some others, it uh, doesn't work. For just your average Joe, <laughs> like um, your average listener for students or whatever, um, what part can they play in this whole big picture? Like how can they help the industry of um, wild foods? And what could they do as individuals also to contribute to like the bigger picture? Well, my focus comes from the yeah nutrition and food perspective. So I, I think everything changing consumption habits helps a bit. Yeah, or can definitely yeah definitely help. So checking where does your food come from, um, and what is my food? Uh, so yeah, is it, is it maybe produced in a more sustainable way or not? So yeah, if. If everybody would change their diets a little bit, because agriculture and our food systems are responsible for so much in terms of climate change and um, destruction of ecosystems. So changing, adapting diets is a big, big thing Every, everyone everyone can do. Um, I think everybody, that's not news. I, I think everybody knows that, but it's really difficult to change, change a certain, yeah, change one oneself. Um But yeah, try around this. If you're interested, also try say there's tons of books and around um, what what you can actually eat, which grows in the forest or outside. Yeah, just outside. Even I mean in Germany as well. So it's uh, and I think it's actually a fun thing to do as well. You get to get connected to nature. To yeah, it makes one. I think it what makes one feel better as well. So that, that's that's one thing. But also, if you're really interested in this topic, so we've got um, we've got big research projects. We've also got smaller research projects. So if you you can also think about um, um, doing your thesis in this area as well. So we try to advertise opportunities on our web website, um, or also just a, yeah approach approach us and see if there's a topic you're interested in to, to write a thesis about um, or a smaller project. A lot of food, I mean, life science is the obvious <laughs> category, but you can also look at it from different angles. Um, so um, in the in the food systems group, there's also a lot of professors involved from other faculties. Um, I think, yeah, we know we've got people from all faculties who are interested in doing food system research. And then, yeah, if you're more interested then from a technology side of things, there's also possibilities there. So um, I would suggest you can just go, See who's interested in this topic from also our website and con directly contact the professor you you'd like to um, work with or yeah and see if there's an op opportunity. Lesson number six: No water, no food. Uh, food is also things that you could could drink or can drink, right? So mm -hmm. is there something that's sustainable about that? Well, um, I went to Camp Lindford to our 
our sibling campus over there and spoke to Professor Ute Hansen, who is also part of the research uh, center. And um, she has a background working in legislation for the European Commission. So, and she's also a biologist. So she's quite div diverse in her in her credentials. I was working for the European Commission. That's why I'm interested in ecology, environmental monitoring, biology, but also with respect to legislation mm. and policies. Uh, development and strategies and that's why I'm interested in a broad range of topics. <laughs> When it comes to her research with the Food Systems Research Center, it's water quality. So um, here I'm. my research topics are mostly related to water management and water is a very important resource. No water, no crops, no, no food. It's a uh, so I'm trying to cover a bit uh, the topics related to water management in this uh, in this research center. And it's interesting because I mentioned three main sub-themes of research, right? Agroforestry, forest products, and insects. But all of them have something in common, which is water. And uh, Professor Dr. Hansen said, if there is no water, there are no crops. And so water quality is important. How does your research um, contribute to the bigger picture of um, sustainable foods? Like we know that, okay, we need the water for foods, but which, uh, where, where does the sustainable sustainability aspect come in? Yeah, the sustainability aspect. Um, sustainability is not about protecting nature. It is about the use of resources. Sustainability is defined as using resources in a way that also future generations can use this resource. And that's why it's very important to take care of the resource water. And that is why it's so important for all aspects of sustainability. It's a general assumption or it's known that in general there is more water available than used. We have more precipitation, let's say rain, hail, snow. Uh, this is higher than the total evaporation and transpiration, uh, so the loss of liquid water to the atmosphere. Uh, this holds true at the global level, also for Germany. But the problem is that there is a certain variability. This is not always like that and not everywhere. So there is a variability. For example, in the Lower Rhine region, Uh, faced uh, several years of very low precipitation. It was much lower than normal. It was less than half per year. And there's evidence that this variability has been increasing due to global change. And it's assumed that it will increase further. This can lead first to that rivers are drying out. And that happened in several cases around here. This means that more water is needed for irrigation in agriculture. This means also that the flow of the water is lower. And if you have the same discharge of, uh, let's say, pollutants, and you have a lower natural flow, the concentration of these substances increase. And this can lead to problems like, for example, what happened to the Uda River, because uh, the discharge of mining water Water pumped out of the mines was the same, but the flow was lower. And uh, then there was a higher salt concentration in the river water. And uh, algae, which usually grow uh, not in freshwater systems, but uh, 
in salty water, they became dominant and they produced a toxic substance. So all these different, um, let's say, processes, they influence each other. And uh, that is a very interesting research topic. And there is a, a need for research. Why is research important? Uh, to understand these processes, to, to, to find out which data we will need in future, what other thinking we have to develop. And that is the, it's a challenge. And this has to be done together with the experts in the region uh, working on water management. And this is what we do. We work closely together with the Wasserverband. It's called Wasserverband that are the, it's kind of um, organization which is uh, getting money from the municipalities and the industry for first taking care that wastewater is treated, second that groundwater and other water resources are kept clean. They are responsible for monitoring, collecting data, controlling the pollutant concentration. They are also protecting against floods and yeah, together with this organization, we we try to, to do research on the future challenges in water management. The problems that we are facing, especially when it comes to sustainability, are pretty serious and have very strong long-term effects. But in, 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 uh, in terms of um, your research area, if no change takes place and if the systems keep going on the way they have been for many years, what would happen? Oh, it's difficult to predict. The water shortage will be a, a big problem. Floods will be a big problem, and these problems will increase. So uh, all processes of agriculture, sustainability will be less predictable. They will We, we will have surprises. <laughs> we will be surprised all the time. Um, I I think it would be very important to look at sustainability changes, long-term trends, not just by thinking about but also looking at data. So sustainability is not about protecting the environment. Um, sustainability is about using resources, right? And uh, I think that goes together with everything else that everyone else was saying because they were talking about reusing resources for future generations. It's all about future generations. But environmental protection also plays a big part because um, we re-benefit from stable ecosystems. So sustainability in German... German language, it is Nachhaltigkeit. And that has been invented in 760 by um, forestry management. Because that time, there were no forests left in Germany. Because they had to use wood for everything, for burning, uh, for industry, for houses, whatever. So they found out we have, we can, we have to grow forests. We have to manage that. And we should use only as much wood as is growing per year. But this idea, how now we see sustainability, includes that we protect biodiversity because the biodiversity is a resource. Biodiversity is a resource because in many aspects, uh, just to have, let's say, if we need a variety of a plant species, having a good yield even at low water uh, availability, we need this genetic variability. And for ensuring that there is a genetic variability and natural resources, we need the biodiversity. It 
So the biodiversity and protecting nature is also seen as a resource. But the general idea is about using this research, these resources. So if there are species, uh, for example, that serve absolutely no purpose to human consumption, so then is is it true that um, biodiversity conservation efforts will sort of like more or less not pay attention to those species and only focus on the ones that we actually would need? Or how, do, how does that work? We have an advantage if ecosystems are stable. We have an advantage if... Um, the if there are species remaining if 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 there is less extinction we have an advantage of that because um an instability of ecosystems uh would can yield can result in very fast changes in the communities and then um, suddenly something's missing we never thought about if there is a system in which the river has a flow and the bees Uh, survive. The system has a certain stability. There are processes. They are all interconnected and they have a certain stability against uh, impacts from outside. But um, if the stability is impaired, then uh, it's also for us, it's a big problem. There are problems we never think about. We have no idea. After exploring all the different science projects and mm. interviews you had with the leading scientists, what is sustainability for you now? How would you define it? Well, my definition would be sort of a combination of all their different definitions. Sustainability is about managing resources for future generations so that our species can continue to exist. What's one lesson you learned? One lesson I learned is, do you know this phrase, no man is an island? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're all in this together. All our actions are going to affect all of us. It's going to affect us in many different levels. So what I've learned is that we need to cooperate. We need to do our part and pull our own weight for the for the bigger goal of having a planet that future generations can thrive in. All right. Harry, you mentioned in the beginning the survey. I think now it comes back into the picture, right? Exactly. So for everyone who filled out the survey before listening to this episode, um, you'll realize that I asked you some questions about sustainability. So right now, you should go back to that email and click on the second link for another survey so that we can measure more accurately whether or not they've actually learned something from this episode and whether we have contributed to a better understanding of sustainability among our listeners. Thank you for listening to the How to Hochschule podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and feel free to follow us and recommend us to your friends. If you have any thoughts or suggestions or just want to let us know how you like the episode, please don't hesitate. Take courage and do reach out to us at podcast at hsrw.eu. We're always looking for ways to improve and we appreciate your feedback. Also, be sure to check out our show notes and links and more information on today's topics and guests. Next time on the How to Hochschule podcast. I mean, you won the best idea cup, but can you explain how it looks like and how, how it works more or less? Is it possible? Tune in next time as we discover how to innovate at the most international university in Germany. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Harry. 
This is the How to Hochschule podcast. We are looking forward to having you back next time. Tschüss.